Tonight I want to focus primarily on concentration, um, although mindfulness and effort are included in this, in this aggregate, this um, aggregate of the training on samadhi. Samadhi is often described as the basis for wisdom in the texts. The Buddha said, develop concentration. One who is concentrated understands things as they really are. The concentration is the ground out of which wisdom will arise. Because with concentration, then we can see things very clearly. We can connect very clearly with our focus and our object of meditation. And we can also see the nature of impermanent conditions arising and passing with clarity. When we have concentration, we can have a clearer experience than what we could ever have with an unconcentrated or unfocused mind. When our minds don't settle, when they're not focused, we might have a certain degree of of recognition and insight into sort of the ways that we're habitually distracted. But there is so much more to insight than than understanding restlessness of mind. So we need the concentration, we need the stability to begin to see the subtle aspects of our experience that are underneath the movements of mind that keep us moving from thought to thought or from action to action or from um, desire to aversion or from reaction to reaction. We need to be able to see the subtle formations where I arises and clings to perceptions, the very basic forms of where craving and suffering arise. Concentration can be developed, though, in many ways, not only in meditation. Almost anything you learn, you'll be developing some concentration in. It could be an artistic practice. It could be a technical pursuit. It could be writing. It could be sports and athletics. Almost anything can develop concentration if we attend to it with some focus and stability. Then we can develop these qualities that circle around samadhi of unification, one-pointedness, and undistractedness. In meditation, concentration is considered the factor of mind which lands on the object or the subject of meditation, penetrates it, almost it's said it pricks into it. It really settles in there and stays there. So there's the connecting aspects of vitaka. And there's the second factor of vichara, which is the sustaining of the awareness, the merging in, the real connection to. So very often when we develop concentration, we choose a very narrow focus. But concentration isn't dependent upon a narrow focus. Whether our attention is narrow or vast, it's the quality of steadiness and unification that describes samadhi. The classic terms in the Visuddhimagga that describe samadhi is the characteristic of non-dispersal, non-dissipation, non-scatteredness, and non-agitation. These come together to describe a mind that we experience as very strong, very stable, very steady. We experience the concentrated mind as a happy mind, 
gladness is there, joy is there, concentration is intimately linked with happiness and light states of mind. It's described as the joy that is born of seclusion. Concentration is associated with tranquility, ease, peace, stillness, calmness, happiness, rapture, delight, joy. I mean, it all sounds pretty good. It's not something that we would turn away from very easily. And that interest, that delightful aspect of concentration helps us stay even more steady with our chosen object. So it's sort of like once we get the concentration rolling, it's easier to deepen into the stability because it's fairly pleasant. There are two kinds of concentration which are generally developed in Vipassana practice. The first is when we take a fixed object or focus for the meditation. And sometimes we'll do that just by staying really steady with the breath. Not so concerned with the changing sensations, but just counting the breath. Just getting the attention to connect and sustain there. We might use metta phrases and then really absorb the attention into the quality of loving kindness arising. Or we might use a mantra. A traditional Thai mantra is of bu do, bu do, bu do. When we choose a fixed object, the mind can get very stable and at very deep levels when the concentration is quite refined, it can lead to the absorption of apanasamadhi or jhana state. The other kind of samadhi, though, that we generally develop when we're practicing um, vipassana is using changing, changing objects. We basically experience the flow of changing mental and physical phenomena. So it's called momentary concentration or kanika samadhi. We maintain a steadiness, but it's not a steadiness on a single object. It's a steadiness through a continuity of mindfulness. And the concentration arises through that continuity of mindfulness. So we're steady in the midst of the changing experiences. It's that steadiness, which is the mental um, experience that describes the samadhi, whether it's based upon a fixed object or the changing flow of sensations. When that steadiness is there and the connecting and the sustaining of the awareness is there and the mind unifies in that experience, we have the experience of samadhi. Samadhi is only one factor of the Eightfold Path. It's only one of the ten paramitas. It's only one of the seven factors of enlightenment one of the five spiritual faculties. It's one of the five spiritual powers. There are many lists that concentration is included in. It's a factor that we develop throughout our practice and supports the development of many other factors. So it's really included in quite a few lists. And yet, it is one factor among those lists. We can't reduce our practice to just one factor. We have to keep it in balance in the range of all of these factors. But concentration needs to be understood not just as a preliminary practice. Even though when most people come to Vipassana practice, the first instruction is to gather the attention, to collect the attention, to stabilize the awareness on the sensations of breath or body. 
It's a logical first instruction because most people live with scattered minds, distracted minds. And if we don't collect the attention, then we're not going to be aware of whatever's present. And yet, even though it's the initial instruction that we often hear, we should not think that it's a preliminary instruction or a basic instruction or an instruction only for beginners. Samadhi also continues to arise out of the, um, the, the, the continuity of mindfulness. And the samadhi can be a direct basis for insight. It's a quality and a factor that very often people very far along in their meditation practice may decide, I want to focus a little bit more on this. They may see the value of it, the richness, and how it supports insight and wisdom and how important it is for the development of all those factors and all those various lists that I mentioned. And so um, choose to devote some time and give some attention to this. Uh, My teacher in India, Poonjaji, used to often describe um, uh, the features of the aspects of two animals, a dog and a lion. Now in India, how many people here have been to India? Well, quite a few of you. You know dogs don't, aren't very high on the social totem pole. You know, you see pretty the, probably the scrawniest dogs you've ever seen that are just sort of struggling for bare existence there. Um, he would describe the dog as, um, as somebody that every time you threw a stick, the dog would chase after it. But a lion, the king of the jungle, does not go running after every stick that's thrown. You would use this comparison to describe our minds because very often we have minds that are like dogs, that every thought that flows by, every desire, every whim, every interest, we go running after it and grasp it, chasing after our thoughts. And you would say, don't be like the dog, chasing after thoughts. Be like the lion. How many people here have cats? Quite a few. Your cats don't go chasing after every stick you throw, right? At least mine doesn't. It sits and it watches. And it sits and it watches. Every now and then a toy will be interesting enough for it to dart at. But for the most part, it watches. And we can learn from this um, a quality of real steady attention to things rather than chasing after. Once we recognize how incredibly distracted our minds are, how frequently in a day we've just ran after a thought and let the mind just wander into an arena that had we paused, we may not have wanted to go, then we start to become very interested in concentration. It's simply attractive to be steadier, to be more stable. And it is a wonderful quality an essential quality. But we must remember again that it's one quality among many that must be developed. Too often, once people get the tiniest taste of concentration, then the interest grows very quickly and that becomes the signpost of practice. I want to go on retreat to get concentrated. My practice this morning was good because I got concentrated. But we do not develop concentration as the aim of the practice, as the goal of the spiritual life. So it's important to understand the context in which we're developing concentration. 
Because when concentration arises, it can be quite seductive due to all those pleasant aspects of joy and rapture and gladness and steadiness and stability and tranquility and calmness that are associated with concentration. It feels, the feeling is like, oh, my practice is finally working. Something's finally bearing fruit. And the feeling can be of great inspiration. The inspiration is not a problem. That can fuel our insight. That can fuel our practice. But if we look to the experiences associated with concentration as the signposts of success on our practice, then we're looking in the wrong direction to assess our development in our practice. The very activity of judging our sittings, either favorably or disfavorably, could very well lead us down the wrong path. Many of the experiences associated with concentration of strong states of rapture and of absorption of that tranquility and joy that arise are the very factors that the Visuddhimagga lists as the ten corruptions of insight. These ten corruptions of insight are not unwholesome states. They are very wholesome states. They arise in relationship to the development of deep, deep samadhi. And yet they must be recognized as corruptions because they are not the path. If we become entranced by them, then it's as though we take a side, um, a side route and may miss the, um, the, the power of concentration to give rise to liberating insight. If we feel that we've succeeded because we've, followed, we've experienced 2,400 breaths consecutively, then we're really looking at the wrong thing to um, just, just have a sense of success in the practice. It is worth sometimes reflecting what an actual signpost of a maturing practice might be, because I'm saying it's not concentration. What might it be? The signpost of a maturing practice is very simply, we suffer less. There's less craving. There's a greater capacity to either encounter experience without clinging, or when we notice that we're clinging, we can, e- we can more easily let go. Whether we are experiencing concentration or not is, is of much less important than our relationship to grasping, clinging, suffering, and the capacity to let go. The concentration depends much more on conditions that will change. Sometimes there'll be conditions for concentration in our lives, and sometimes there won't be. But in those times when there aren't strong conditions that support concentration, our practice can still be very alive and very vital. I want to mention three possible um, ways that are that concentration development can be distorted or misdirected or misused the first is just sometimes the concentration gets out of balance with the other factors in particular the aspect of energy if our concentration grows very strong but too strong for the amount of energy that we have available then the tendency is to fall asleep 
And sometimes people experience this in the middle of a retreat and find, feel that their, their practice was perking along so well. The concentration was really strong, the joy, the steadiness, the insights were all flowing, and the concentration was building and building and building. And then they go into the meditation hall and find that sloth and torpor has completely overcome the mind. <coughs> Sometimes that happens simply because the concentration was too strong for the amount of energy that was available. So we need to then do something to boost the energy or to boost the other arousing factors of joy, delight, or interest and investigation. How do we know when we have either enough concentration or way more than enough excessive concentration? One way is to notice, the keep, keep checking in with the balance of the factors. And part of that is that concentration develops a real strong stability and stillness of mind. But for Vipassana practice, for insight to arise, we need the vitality of the arousing factors of investigation, joy, delight, and energy. So there may be times when we feel that the mind is starting to get dull. Or it's as though we're unmoved by experience. Or um, there's a quality of inertia in our minds. Even though there may be some degree of clarity and steadiness, we can still feel that inertia. Or we might just even feel too still or, in the extreme, sleepy and dull. But very often it first arises as a sense of, of being uninterested or unmoved by things. And so that's a sign that we can boost some of those arousing factors. Connect with the delight, connect with appreciation. You know, take a moment to actually see and, and feel the joy of seeing um, nature or of the capacity to be aware or reflect upon our motivations so that that inspires, brings the inspirational energy. Or it could be just by, instead of just staying steady, start to look really clearly to investigate our changing experience so that we boost the interest factor. Sometimes if we become very focused on the development of concentration, we can use concentration to avoid what's difficult. And this becomes problematic if we do this habitually in our lives. So then instead of secluding the mind in order to deepen concentration, we begin to withdraw from experience just because it's difficult and because we can find a safe refuge, a joyful refuge in concentration. The Buddha recommended having the capacity to abide in these peaceful and pleasant abidings of concentration so that we have the ability to direct our minds to peaceful states and cultivate that ability, but not in order to avoid the difficulties in life. We have to turn our attention to experience desire and aversion, to experience doubt, to experience the hindrances and the defilements so that we can overcome them. One way we can see whether or not we are... Um, using concentration improperly rather than just as a restorative rest of these happy abidings, which is fine to uh, regenerate ourselves, to restore our energy. 
Um, if we're if we're avoiding things for a long time, we'll start to find a feeling of alienation growing. It'll be as though there's a hardening rather than a softening into life. That sense of separation will become strong rather than the experience of connection and clarity. So we can just notice for ourselves what accumulates over time and then adjust the practice accordingly. Another um, possible challenge with concentration practice is sometimes if we take a single focus for our concentration, such as a mantra or a sound or a particular image, you know, the classic one is staying focused on a candle or something. Whenever we stay very, very steady for a long time with a single unchanging object, well, objects are always changing, but we're not focusing on the change of the objects, um, then we might be engaging in that practice without the investigation and the, the energy factors. And it's as though the mind becomes very steady and pleasant by staying stable on that object, but not necessarily clear, not seeing deeply into the changing nature of life. And so eventually the same pattern occurs. We move from a pleasantness to a peacefulness, before long a dullness, a slowness, and then we're asleep. So we need to continue as we develop and value concentration, keep checking to make sure that we're developing it wisely and in balance in balance in particular with the other aspects such as mindfulness and clear seeing and energy. How do you determine if concentration is what's called right samadhi or wrong samadhi? Does anybody have a response to that? You know, the Eightfold Path is right, you know, Right view, right thought, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. There's also wrong, 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 wrong. How would you know whether it was right or wrong? There's got to be a guess out there. Please. If it seems to be helpful in cultivating the other seven aspects of the path, Ah, that's a nice one. That's a nice one because it really is reflecting on the balance and the support and the effect of the concentration. Yes. Did you have another response? It's similar. I mean, I was just thinking that the old yardstick of whether it leads to wholesome states or unwholesome states. Yes, that's always a good one to go back to just a very simple and clear reflection. That's the basis of wisdom. Is this wholesome? Is this unwholesome? Is this developing um, wholesome states or unwholesome states? Um, I like to just ask myself to what degree it's affected by clinging. You know, just to experience whether there's grasping in the mind or not in relationship to the state of concentration. Right samadhi is classically defined in the suttas as the samadhi that takes relinquishment as its object. Throughout the entire development of concentration, relinquishment, the capacity of letting go, of non-clinging, of release, is the basis, the way of developing, and the result of samadhi. 
so we can check in to that aspect of release. Now, in the texts, that can include the ultimate release of Nibbana, the ultimate relinquishment. But we might also just check in with the capacity of how much attachment and letting go is involved in, our de- in the development of, the, of it. Because there will be problems only if we're attached. We don't get attached or stuck in the concentration. Some people think, oh, I can't get too concentrated or I'll get attached. I don't think we get attached to concentration. We get stuck in the clinging. So if we can maintain or periodically just check in to see, are they still balanced? Is this wisdom? Is, there, is this wholesome or unwholesome? And is this affected by clinging? Then we're in, including wisdom in the development of the samadhi and um, um, it will lead to liberating insight, to a freeing of the, of the mind from craving and grasping. The primary problem that, um, that students encounter when they do concentration practice is if the concentration practice is not exploratory, if it's done without mindfulness. We need those other aspects that form the aggregate of the training of samadhi, which is effort and um, mindfulness and concentration to really come together in the unification of mind. There's a story that um, Punjaji, my teacher in India, used to say quite frequently. Um, he used to tell a story, of, it's a traditional Indian story of, of a great sage, a rishi, who was very adept at concentration. He would enter deep states of absorption for long, long, long periods of time. And one time he um, sat down and was going to make himself a cup of tea. And he was waiting for the water to boil, so he thought, well, I'll develop a little bit of concentration and um, you know, have a little quick meditation while the water's boiling for tea. So he sat down near the fire and um, entered a state of absorption. Seven years later, he, he had a strong concentration. Seven years later, he came out of the concentration state and he wanted his tea. Concentration is not the factor that uproots craving. The same desire that he entered the concentration state with was the same desire that he came out of it with. We need wisdom for liberating insight. But through concentration states, we can experience the peace of desirelessness temporarily. It's as though we experience a taste a whiff of the mind that is not preoccupied by craving and suffering. But this is a desirelessness or a peace that is born of seclusion, not born of wisdom. There's a difference. It's temporary because it's dependent upon the conditions for concentration. Some people are naturally very inclined towards concentration and find that the mind settles quite easily. And so we'll have to develop a little bit more um, focus on those arousing aspects and the investigation in order to, to, when emerging from the concentration, have the vitality for insight to arise. 
Some people experience deep states of concentration when doing a meditation retreat, but may find that the sittings are so still and so deep and in a way utterly delicious. And yet the insights arise more quickly, more frequently, more strongly when they're doing walking meditation or during a meal or when they're getting up from the sitting or when they're wrapping the shawl around themselves. It's not uncommon to find that the stability of mind develops in the stillness, but we need the interaction of the stability with that exploratory quality and sometimes a little bit of movement or activity shifts it just enough to spark the insight. I'd like to read a poem um, of Patakara. Patakara was a disciple, a nun at the time of the Buddha, who had a very difficult, a lot of grief occurred in her life um, before she ordained. And then she practiced extremely sincerely. And upon the part of the custom at the time of the Buddha was, upon one's awakening, they would write an enlightenment verse, sort of a song or a, 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 a singing their, their, their experience. Um, and her poem is, When they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth, when they care for their wives and children, young Brahmins find riches. But I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bath water spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell checked the bed and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. I love this poem. Well, I, I, I'm, I quite um, have a, a nice feeling towards Patakara's whole story. But um, I love this poem in particular because she... Um, she had a reflection on her practice. She was doing everything right, the form, the practices. She was a dedicated yogi. She wasn't lazy or proud, and yet she recognized that she still hadn't found peace. She did a simple act of bathing her feet. She watched the bathwater spill down, and she decided to, and she chose to really concentrate her mind. So she concentrated the mind the way one trains a good horse. And then she went into her room and and, um, prepared for bed. The moment of realization occurred in this very simple activity, not in the deep states of concentration, but in this very simple activity of turning out the light. Meditation practice is not just a technology that we can apply to get certain results, that if we do this, this, and this, we will experience that. We do use our meditation practice to create conditions that are conducive to concentration, that are conducive to harmony and calmness and tranquility and connection. And this works up to some point. But the conditions for concentration are vulnerable. We can use those conditions to create a space, such as on retreat, that retreats are are designed in a way to create the most conducive conditions in our culture for concentration because we reduce the stimulus. 
we um, simplify our life. We're not engaged in so many projects that distract us and pull our attention. There's quietness and silence. And during these retreat periods, we set aside all of the entanglements that keep us preoccupied and busy and establish our intention to develop an inner sense of solitude and gladness and peace of mind. But the states associated with concentration will dissipate after the retreat, after those conditions change. So it's essential to apply the concentration to the experience of insight. Once the mind is concentrated, it's as though the conditions are there, the steadiness, the capacity to see deeply, it um, spills over into our next experience. So when we come out of a meditation for con- of concentration, we bring that clarity into our next encounter and that strength of mind so that we can see very deeply, oh, this is changing or this is how clinging arises and have the option to um, not cling. So concentration is developed intentionally with the use and support of conditions. It's developed in bal- with the balance of other factors, particularly effort, energy, mindfulness, and investigation. But what about a freedom that is not bound by these conditions, that is not bound by the movement of mind towards activity or towards stillness? We develop concentration not to experience the taste of concentration, but to realize a peace that is beyond concentration on any particular object or any particular state. To experience and know deeply life without clinging. The experience of not clinging is not based or dependent upon any particular conditions of seclusion, stillness, or silence. It's a peace and an ease that is not dependent on a movement between calmness and distraction, between sound and silence. It's a peace that's not fixated on any particular perception or any particular state. It doesn't require a mantra. It doesn't require a focus. It doesn't require any particular object. The profound unification and stability of mind that we experience through concentration that's unfragmented, undisturbed, undistracted, is not shaken by any perception, thought, or mood, becomes a, 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 a tool that we can then, it's like a light that we can then shine upon our experience for insight to arise. Ajahn Chah said, try, uh, are you familiar with Ajahn Chah, a Thai forest monk? Um, he said, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. <laughs> then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Please. When you 
Yes. Yes. When you experience all the subtleties of the breath, like the tingling and the coolness and the heat and the pulsing and the vibration and the way the expansion and contraction, you can develop very strong momentary concentrations, which is called kanika samadhi. So the, the object is changing because it's changing from coolness to heat, from vibration to tingling. And yet there's a steadiness of focus, the connecting and the sustaining, the directing of the attention and the merging in are very, very strong. So the samadhi grows even as the object is perceived in all of its changing aspects. You can also take the breath and develop apana samadhi or absorption just with the steady focus by not giving attention to the changing experiences, but more just knowing the mind's capacity to connect and sustain at a point. So then you choose just a point and then just develop that quality of concentration. In vipassana practice, the aspect of concentration that's most conducive to, um, to vipassana practice and is that that is the concentration on changing experiences. So the concentration develops and the mindfulness develops really hand in hand and the changing nature of things, the empty, impermanent nature of things, the selfless nature is experienced very vividly and very clearly through that, that combination of mindfulness and concentration on the changing sensations. Um, so if you want to, some people want to just focus a little bit more just on concentration without as much mindfulness, just to boost that factor. And then they would choose a stable object for some period of time. But generally, the, the, the recommendation is to follow the changing sensations with, a, with that focusing. Oddly enough, concentration develops slightly different if you use this point on the breath or the rising and falling for the breath or the whole breath. There'll be subtleties of the the way that concentration develops just through the nature of those changing experiences so that if you're experiencing the rising and falling, you're really experiencing movement. So concentration develops slightly different than if you're choosing a particular point. Um, But samadhi will develop in, in either case. To develop samadhi, yes, but vipassana requires vipassana requires the the insight practice requires the perception of change. So that's why um, the rising and falling is um, in some schools of vipassana preferred object. Um, but um, because it includes in within that the mindfulness, the um, and the change uh, mindfulness of changing experiences. So the samadhi arises out of mindfulness. Um, and if you develop simply um, concentration, it's not necessarily vipassana. Concentration alone, um, uh, I believe, must be applied to um, it, for insight in order for it to be wise, in order for it to have value, to, to be worthwhile um, in, a, in, in, a, in a practice of liberation. But it is possible to just do concentration on a fixed object and never experience the changing nature of things. Um, some people call that stupid samadhi. Mm-hmm. And really you have to wonder why do it. 
you know, you experience tranquility and calmness and bliss and happiness and peace, but so what? When there's the possibility of freeing the mind. So, um, so it, it is valid to use a fixed object in order to deepen concentration when you know very clearly. That's why I spent a long part of this talk emphasizing not just concentration, but concentration in the context of all of the other factors with some investigation. Because I find it very useful to choose a fixed object sometimes, but to know that that then has to be applied to changing experiences. But also... You, you can just stay with the rising and falling and concentration will develop out of the continuity of that. Because it's the steadiness. There are lots of ways of developing steadiness. There are lots of ways of practicing vipassana. Thank you. It's a very practical, important question. Please. Where would you classify if you're focusing on the concept of the breath as well as just the concept of the body? Because that's what I focus on. I can achieve deep states of concentration but I don't understand where you would classify that because it is changing but it's also one pointedness in my mind when you experience when you see, what are you focusing on as the concept of the breath what's that well first I'd focus on <coughs> the concept of my body so it would be one pointedness on my entire body but then I bring into effect just the fact that I am breathing noticing that I'm breathing but not putting any depth into it, not really looking at it, feeling the different sensations of the breath, just knowing that I am breathing. And I focus just on that concept. As a concept and not as a sensation, not as a felt experience in the body. Not really. Concept. So you could experience it even without, you could hold your breath and have the same quality of meditation. I'd say so. Where did you learn this practice? You just developed it? Okay. Okay, interesting. I believe I actually read that Paoxaida also, I remember reading something about just using the concept of breath. But I had developed this on my own before reading that, and I didn't really get into the depth of what exactly he was saying, so I don't know if it was the same or not. Yeah. Um, It would be a fixed object because you're not experiencing the change of it. Um, There's a very interesting movement in the development of concentration from taking physical objects to taking mental objects. Um, And through that, there's a a deepening subtlety of perception, um, such as when you shift from... um, um, you can say feeling the sensations, if you were feeling the sensations of the breath in another practice, then there's a way of shifting from that to shifting to the mental factors of concentration themselves, such as connecting and sustaining. So one then takes a mental activity, which is subtler than the physical sensations, and one moves then from the form to the formless in, um, in a sequential way. Um, The selection of a meditation object is actually a fairly important part of the practice to find one that is suitable and to uh, find one that goes to where you want it to go. Not all meditation objects go equally far. Um, So that's something that is worth considering and exploring is the particular object that one is inclined towards and um, 
uh, how it can be developed and how far it can be developed. Um, there are classic, there are lists of classic suitable meditation objects um, that, that can be worked with. So in terms of where that would fall in its classification, I mean, I would say that it would fall under the fixed samadhi because it's a concept. But um, I would, um, I would, I would give a lot of reflection to and, and, and thought as to why the concept of a breath would be chosen as an object. Um, and maybe we could discuss it in more detail later because that may not be a practice that very many other people are doing. But, um, but what object, um, how, how would the, um, whatever object we choose, and, and we can choose different objects at different times in our practice, but each object develops slightly differently. If you're developing loving kindness as an object of meditation, it develops slightly differently than the breath. The rising and falling will develop differently than the point at the nostrils. Um, it's not that samadhi won't be developed in them. They will be. You can choose classic um, reflections. So there are reflections that take a particular thought, a, per, um, a reflection on, um, on the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, um, as, well, as well a thought which is taken as a fixed object in the same way perhaps that the concept of, of, of the breath is taken as a thought. If you can do it without breathing, if you can do it while holding your breath, then it's, just, then it's a thought. So you can take a thought as an object through the reflection. You can take what's called foulness or reflecting on the impurities of the body as an object for concentration practice. And they're all very powerful and each one develops slightly differently and within the ranges of concentration each has their um, their limit, so to speak. Because, and their limit is based upon what conditions are required to give rise to that perception. If you're working with something that's physical, then you won't be able to experience the formless realms because that physical object depends upon the physical aspect. Um, so there's sort of a sequence of, of choosing particular objects and working with them skillfully and then also being willing to abandon them so that one changes one's object. What's called a nimitta or a sign in concentration. One allows the nimitta to change as the concentration deepens. So one may focus in a particular way at the beginning of practice but then allow that nimitta or that sign or the focus of the concentration to change as the, as the practice deepens. So there's a sort of a whole system that, that develops through it. 